Today we are going to conclude our series Aftershock, which means that next week we get to start a new series. Next week we're starting a series titled The Renewing of the Mind. Anybody feel like a renewing of the mind might be good for you right now, especially after the last 14 months? A renewal of the mind, I think, is going to be so beneficial. So for four weeks, we're going to talk about this. Guys, our thoughts are powerful, aren't they? They change our perspective. They impact our decisions. They influence our habits. Belief may be one of the most powerful forces in all of the world, actually. Have you ever thought about this? Belief causes people, that, that alone, belief causes people to strap bombs to themselves and go into crowded buildings. Belief causes people to fly planes into buildings. It's crazy. Belief that the Aryan race was the master race compelled Hitler and others to incinerate six million Jews. Belief that Hitler's invasion of Poland and his ideologies were wrong compelled others to go to war to stop him. It was all belief. It was all because people thought things. It was all because of people believed things about something, that all of these atrocities and all these heroic actions took place. Belief causes some people to invent things and discover things and solve problems. Belief are thoughts about things, right? The firing of neurons in our brains, these are powerful. They change the world. They change lives. But what do we do when we become trapped by our thoughts? Anybody feel trapped by their thoughts? Again, uh, these last 14 months, I I feel like all of us, no matter where you are on the spectrum, have been trapped by thoughts, maybe unable to escape negative or unhealthy thinking. I think these past 14 months in particular have caused all of us to spiral into unhealthy thought habits. To some extent, we've all been trapped by our thoughts and beliefs. It doesn't matter where you fall on the spectrum of vaccinations. It doesn't matter where you fall on the spectrum of masks or mitigations or community engagement or any of these things. All of us, to some extent, have been trapped by our thoughts and our beliefs about it all. Some people are compelled towards fear because of it. Some people are compelled towards arrogance because of it. And everywhere in the middle, to some extent, we have all been trapped by our thoughts and they have sent us spiraling. So over the next four weeks, we're going to learn what it means to take our thoughts captive and be transformed then by the renewing of our minds. I would really, really encourage you guys to invite your friends, invite those people you know that are suffering through mental illness negative emotional thoughts, negative mental thoughts, whatever they may be, please invite your friends to join you right here on the lawn the next Sunday or online. We'll be right here. But today we are finishing up Aftershock. We've been looking at the first church as described in the book of Acts to see how the world began to change because of the resurrection of the dead and how even the world begins to change even today. Because we are the Aftershock, right? The resurrection happened, that great earthquake, and now the Aftershocks of that event are still trickling through the world. There is a narrative, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, there's a narrative that runs through the first half of the book of Acts that comes to a conclusion in a letter that James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, writes, and I want to wrestle with this today, this narrative that is going through the first book of Acts and then the conclusion that James comes to in this letter in chapter 15. And the reason I want to do this, to conclude this series, is because I think we, meaning the local church, have made it unnecessarily hard for the world to come to faith in Christ. And we need to acknowledge that, and we need to repent of that then, but we have made it unnecessarily hard for people to come to faith in Christ, which simply means, I think, that we have failed to completely understand exactly what following Jesus actually asks of us. Now, I did not grow up attending church. We were uh, occasionally an Easter and Christmas kind of family. I didn't have a context for what church was. I didn't have a context for what proper protocol was in church. You guys know what I mean by proper protocol in church? 
Right, a lot of heads waving, right? There's proper protocol for church, it seems to be, right? And so this alone can make it unnecessarily hard for people to come to faith, and I'll tell you why I think that in just a minute. I didn't really have a context for proper protocol in church or what the church was until my mom sent me off to summer camp for two weeks with my cousin. Sunday morning came around, and several of us pile up in this camp bus, and we go to town, and we attend a church service. And so all the boys and all the girls go into church, except for me, because I wasn't wearing a collared shirt. I wasn't permitted in this church because I didn't have a collared shirt on. And there were several girls who skirts weren't sweeping the floor as they walked. They weren't permitted in the church either. Proper protocol inside the church. You can't come in this place. You're not allowed to worship with us. You cannot be accepted was the implication. You can't be accepted by God. Why? Because you're not wearing a collared shirt. And good Christians know that when they come into church, they have to dress the part, they have to look the part, certainly you have to behave the part. I didn't have a context for what proper protocol within the church looked like. It was never explicitly stated, but, but the belief rose within me that I can't be accepted by God if I don't look the part, if I don't dress the part, if I don't act the part. If I don't know the rules and then follow the rules, right? The church as I experienced it and as it interpreted the message of Jesus to me made it so hard and by default unappealing to come to Jesus. If you were to go on my <clears throat> Facebook page, if you guys are friends with me on Facebook, I asked this question this morning on Facebook and there are stories after stories after stories of people who said, this is why I don't go to church. Here's why I don't follow Jesus. Here's, why, here's how the church has made it unnecessarily hard for me to embrace Christ. The church as I experienced it and how it interpreted the message of Jesus to me made it so hard and by default unappealing to come to Christ. The church put a yoke upon my shoulders that I could not co possibly bear. But as luck would have it, <clears throat> at this camp I met a good Christian girl and so I became a good Christian boy. I was going to try, right? The church is putting a yoke on me, so I was at least going to try, at least on the outside. But really all I did, and maybe some of you can experience, have experienced this in the past, maybe this is some of your stories as well. All I did was shove my doubts and my insecurities and my judgments and my hypocrisy down beneath the surface of what people could see. I bought into a version of the Christian faith that held religion in one hand, right? These are my works. These are my attempts at being approved by God, I held all of these in the one hand and I held Jesus in the other and I blended the two together. I had religion and I had Jesus. And I blended the two together. I tried to combine the two together. I did exactly what so many early followers of Jesus did in the book of Acts. We embraced Jesus in a sense as the means to be accepted before God, but we maintained the works of the law as necessary for God's approval. So I have Jesus in one hand, this is how I'm approved by God, but I am, it is necessary for me to have the works of the law in order to be truly approved by God, right? It was a blended version of Christianity where Jesus was important, yes, of course, Jesus is important, but Jesus can't be everything, right? Obviously, yes, Jesus plus the way that you dress plus the way that you look, plus the lack of your tattoos, plus your gender, plus the food that you eat, plus the people you hang out with, plus the music you listen to. There was this one night at camp, one of the last nights, and all the kids were invited to take all of their, all of their secular music and throw it into the fire. And in, in, part of me was inspired, you know, like, wow, these kids are really committing. And there was a part of me that was grateful I hadn't brought my Pearl Jam CDs with me to camp that week. 
You see, in the first century, there was an enormous sect of Jewish converts to Christianity that were saying that in order to be fully accepted by God as Christian, you first had to become Jewish. That's a huge dialogue in the book of Acts. The first half of the book of Acts is really wrestling with this. Almost the entire book of Galatians is wrestling with this. So much of Romans, so much of Paul's writing are wrestling with these mentalities that in order to be fully accepted by God as a Christian, you first had to become Jewish, mainly that the men needed to be circumcised. They needed to follow the Jewish dietary laws as well as all the other cultural, civic, and religious laws, 613 of them, and that you could not associate with Gentiles. And this thinking was so ingrained in them that Peter, of course, this is Peter, right? The, the man who followed Jesus for three years, commissioned as to, to be the leader of the disciples. This is Peter. Peter was praying on top of a rooftop. This is Acts chapter 10 one day. And he had a vision. This is 10 years after Jesus rose from the dead, right? This is the Peter whom we all look up to and who we hold in such high esteem as the leader of all the disciples and the leader of the church. We're told in Acts chapter 10, he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now aside from circumcision, right, nothing embodied a commitment to the Jewish law more than dietary restrictions and cleanliness practices. And so Peter's response is understandable, sort of. He says, surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything unclean or impure. Well, the dream is repeated two more times when suddenly Peter is awakened by a knock on the door. He opens it and is greeted by two men and a soldier who invite him to the house of Cornelius, a Roman soldier, a Gentile. He's hesitant to go for reasons we'll get to in just a minute, but he does, and he enters Cornelius' home, and in his living room is full of Cornelius' friends and full of Cornelius' family. Of course, they're all Gentiles. And imagine the tension created by what comes out of Peter's mouth, right? So this is Peter, the good, faithful Jew, and he goes to the house of a Gentile. Remember, as a good, faithful Jew, he is not permitted to enter the house of a Gentile. And so here's what he says. You are well aware that it is against the law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. And I, I just can, can imagine somebody in the back at that point says, well, isn't that mighty of you, Peter? Good for you, Peter. Well, that's so big of you. Peter admitted that he considered non-Jews an impure and unclean. And really, that's what he was taught since childhood, right? As a good, faithful Jew, it summed up the first century Jewish attitude towards non-Jews. This is the same Peter who lived with Jesus for three years and listened and watched everything that Jesus did and taught. Peter was with Jesus when he went to the Decapolis, all those pagan people, and preached the gospel to them. He was with Peter, G Peter was with Jesus when he went into the, the house of the centurion and he rose the, the Gentile's daughter from the dead. Peter watched as Jesus embraced the Gentiles and he listened as Jesus said, go into all of the world, all of the world with his message of God's love and redemption. And yet for some reason, Peter, that never translated to, to an, uh, a separation of this blended form of, of the law of Moses and Jesus. It never translated into this. Peter still held on to this blended, this combined religious effort to put Jesus in one hand and the Roman law or the, uh, the Jewish law in the other. He says this, I now realize, yeah, it's taken a little while, right? Ten years after the resurrection, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts every, from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So finally, Peter realized that God did actually love all of the world, even the Gentile world. 
So Peter tells these Gentiles about Jesus, and the Holy Spirit fills the room. But his companions, the people who were with them, their response shows how deep the racism between Jews and Gentiles went. See, the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished, the text says. They were astonished. Like, the gift of the Holy Spirit has been poured out even on Gentiles. They were astonished that God would do for Gentiles what he had done for Jews. In spite of everything that Jesus taught, his followers were still clinging to the law in one hand and Jesus in the other, and they were trying to, trying to form this blended religious version, combined version of, of Christianity where, where the law is still equally as important as everything that Jesus did for us. And so the church, in the very beginning, was exclusive. And it was also excluding. You see, while the message of faith was very, very appealing to the Gentiles, the community of faith was not. Let me say that again. The message of Jesus was very appealing to the world. The community of faith was not appealing to the world. People who were nothing like Jesus liked the message of Jesus, but they didn't like the community charged with stewarding the message of Jesus. And 2,000 years later today, my friends, the struggle is the same, isn't it? We talk about this all the time because we are determined to change this at Restoration Church. My friends, the primary obstacle for people to come to faith in Jesus is the church. And that's hard for me to say because I'm a pastor of a church, but the greatest obstacle for people to come to faith in Jesus is the church. It's not that people aren't interested in Jesus. It's that people aren't interested in having to embrace him in the context of the local church, full of its presumed hypocrisy, full of its presumed judgmentalism, all the rules on dress code and thou shalt not and the presumed need to believe certain things about creation and science and the role of women in society. The world, especially our post-Christian world, views Christianity as old-fashioned and rigid. We have chosen to die, in my opinion, on a lot of unnecessary hills as the church, which has made the church and the Jesus we represent unappealing. My friends, the church has got to humble itself. We've got to repent of many of our ways, and we have to move forward in a new direction. If we do not, we must prepare ourselves for generations to continue to slide into hopelessness, the hopelessness the world offers. But we're not alone. We're not alone. The first century church wrestled with this exact same problem. When Peter got back to Jerusalem and told the church leaders what had happened to Cornelius, instead of celebrating that so many had met Jesus, the circumcised believers, these are the people who held the Jewish law in one hand and Jesus in the other, right? The circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of the uncircumcised and ate with them? How dare you? Shame on you for interacting with those who don't know Jesus. Right? These fellow Jesus followers were appalled that Peter would even enter the house of a Gentile. That would be like me condemning you saying, you went into your, you, you watched the Eagles game at your neighbor's? How dare you? We don't do that as Christians. We don't interact with those who are far from Jesus. No, 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 no. We cannot be the hope of the world. No, 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 no. We can't offer them forgiveness. No, 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 no. We are not those kind of people. We stick to ourselves. We're here in the fortress. This is where you're safe. You're with those who are safe. If you go into the world, you're not safe anymore. No, no, let them perish. How dare you go into the house 
of your neighbor. And so Peter took a step back and he explained the whole thing to them. Well, come on, guys. If God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? They were again astonished, but this time they were understanding. And so they said, well, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. But they shouldn't have been astonished. Wasn't this exactly what God told Abraham way back in Genesis 12? I'm going to bless you so that through you all of the world, the Gentile world, will be blessed? Isn't this why God came to the the Israelites after they were liberated from the Exodus to say, I am going to make you a priestly nation, that you will be my mediators, the mediators of my redemptive work to all of the world? They just didn't get it. They resisted. And so, friends, I say, please, will you go to your neighbor's house today and have lunch with them? Will you just go into your neighbor's house who are far from Jesus and and live like Christ and be generous towards them and work for their good and do good for them? Will you just live like Christ in the world? Instead of saying the world is evil and bad and we need to stay away from it? Can we just represent Christ well? Can we just be his ambassador in the world? It didn't end there. 300 miles north of Jerusalem in the Greek city of Antioch, this blended version of Christianity that held the Jewish law in one hand and Jesus in the other. It was the predominant message that was being preached to all of the new Christians coming in to Christ. We're told that certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers this. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, guess what? You can't be saved. The law of Moses in one hand, Jesus in the other, unless they are blended, unless you are circumcised, unless you follow the law, unless you follow the dietary restrictions, and then, yeah, you have Jesus attached to the side of that, you cannot be saved. And so leaders, including Peter and James and Paul and Barnabas, as well as all the proponents of the blended version of the faith, gathered in Jerusalem to host the first church business meeting. The only item on the agenda was this. Do Christians coming to faith, do Gentiles coming to faith in Christ have to follow the entirety of the law of Moses? It's the only issue on the table during the first church business meeting. After some very lengthy debate, Peter stood up to address the crowd. And he said, brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving, him the, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them. He purified their hearts by works. No, no, no. He purified their hearts by following the Mosaic law. No, no, no. He followed their hearts by faith. He purified their hearts by faith. Peter declared that God was welcoming all people into a relationship with himself by faith. And if it's by faith, it does not matter if you are Jew or Gentile. And then he acknowledged something that everyone in the room knew in their heart and they knew in their mind, but they were all hesitant to say. He said, if it is truly by faith, why then do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? I mean, come on, keeping the law was difficult, right? This is true of even Jews raised in the law. How much more difficult would it be for adult Gentiles to follow truly the law 
Every person in the room realized how unrealistic it was to expect adults raised in pagan households with pagan worldviews and pagan customs to instantly adopt all that came with being a Jew and adopt all of the civic and moral and religious responsibilities, all 613 laws that they just waded through and not even the Jews could even keep. They expected the Gentiles to keep this. Circumcision was nothing compared to the burden of reorienting every single facet of your life around the Jewish civil, moral, and religious law. And so Peter says, no. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just like everybody else. Let me say that again for everybody to hear in all these households. We believe that is the grace of Jesus Christ that we are saved There is no blended version of the faith. It is Jesus alone and the grace he offers through his death and his resurrection. This is the merit of our salvation, not what we have accomplished, right? There is no law. There is no works that we could ever abide by that would ever save us. It is Christ in Christ alone. It is by the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And Peter finally got it. 20 years now by this point after the resurrection, Peter finally understands This is not Judaism 2.0. This is brand new. This is the old has passed away. This is the law has been fulfilled. This is something new. We are saved by grace, which means, my friends, that God leans in the direction of sinners. And God leans in the direction of those who least deserve his presence. And God leans in the direction of those who realize that they are far from him. And God leans in the direction of those who know they are broken, who know they are messed up. And if that is true, my question is, why then is the church, is the church traditionally so hesitant to do the same? If God leans in the direction of sinners, if God leans in the direction of those who are messed up, who recognize they are broken, who recognize they are far from him, why hasn't the church done the same? Why do we make it so hard on people to come to faith in Christ? Why was it that I wasn't permitted inside this church to hear the grace of God because I didn't have a collared shirt on? My friends, I will be the the first to admit and I will lead the charge for our church in declaring that I am a messed up, broken sinner. Peter wrote Timothy and said, hey, here's, here's really, really good news. It's a, it's a very trustworthy saying. This is something you should believe in. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And by the way, I am the worst of them. And so if we're going to line up all of us as far as who is the worst among us, I want to be at the back. All right, I'm going to lead the charge in that. I am the worst. I am the messed up sinner among us. And if that is true of me, then what do I have to judge anybody for? We are all sinners waiting in a sea of grace, my friends. And the more that I am aware of what God has yet to do in me, guess what? The less critical I become of what God has yet to do in you. Friends, the more that you are aware of what God has yet to do in you, the more you are aware of your shortcomings, the more that you are aware of how far in the back of the line you are, the less critical you're going to become of your neighbor. The less critical you're going to become of your ex the less critical you are going to become of those who are far from Christ. See, as Peter is making his way back to his seat, James, 
the brother of Jesus stood up and said something that I recently found so inspiring that I printed it off and I have it now in my office to continue to inspire me. I have it displaying now in my office to remind me of this very, very important truth that I hope Restoration Church will embody and own and claim. See, after a quick explanation of a passage from the prophet Amos, James says this, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for those who are turning to Christ. It is my judgment we should not make it difficult for those who are turning to Christ. We shouldn't do anything that makes it unnecessarily hard for people who are turning to God. And so several years ago, after a service, I had, I had two interactions that I will never forget. First, there was a man who approached me. He first told me that he was a longtime Christian. I don't know why people feel like they need to tell me that when they come to me, the pastor. I've been a Christian for a long time, friend. I think they're trying to say, so you can trust what I have to say. What I have is wise. What I, what I say is mature. You can trust me. I've been a Christian for a long time. He had to establish himself as a mature, faithful follower of Jesus. He said that, I, I, I think I really liked what you had to say, but I couldn't, get the, I couldn't get past the fact that you were wearing flip-flops and a t-shirt to preach the gospel in. He said, therefore, I won't be coming back. Why he felt the need to have this exit interview with me, I don't really know. But here's the ironic thing. Behind him was a woman who told me her story. She said life was hard. She was a waitress at a diner, and one of her customers told her about Restoration Church. By the way, you should be doing that, okay? This is an incredible example, friends, of what a simple invite to church can do for somebody. She was really hesitant to come, as so many people are hesitant to come. My friends, if people are invited to come sit next to you, they will do it about 75% more times than if they have to come independently and know nobody in the crowd, my friends. Our circles of influence are the greatest mission field that we have. So she was really hesitant to show up. She didn't know anybody, but nonetheless, she came. Courageously, she came. As she approached the building, she stopped in her tracks. She looked up at her grader, who happened to be Dave Lewis, and Dave Lewis was the one who actually told me this story because uh, I wasn't actually there the Sunday that she first came. Dave Lewis is a phenomenal man, uh, a, a a dear mentor of mine, I, I just, I adore and love Dave Lewis. Thank you, Dave Lewis, if you're watching. Thank you for all that you have done in my life and in the community. You are truly a Barnabas to the world. She looks up at Dave Lewis, who is standing up on our perch here. She looks up at Dave and she says, I can't go in there. I am not dressed appropriately for church. Here's a woman who knows that she is broken, who knows she's messed up, who knows she needs hope. I can't go in there because there is a certain protocol for what I've understood about what it means to be sitting in a church pew. And I can't go in there because I'm not dressed appropriately. And Dave looks at her and he says, friend, you should see our pastor. He is in jeans and a t-shirt and flip-flops. Come on in. And so on the one hand, you have this man who says, I can't listen to the gospel from your lips because you're wearing jeans and a t-shirt. I've been a Christian for a long time. I'm mature. I'm a faithful follower of Jesus. I know what I'm talking about. And you have this other woman on the other end who says, I am lost and broken and I need the hope of Christ. And I will find it in a man wearing jeans and a t-shirt and a flip-flop. Only a man wearing jeans and a flip-flop and t-shirt because I don't feel like I can come into any other church context. She came in, she heard the gospel, she met Jesus, and she was baptized just a few months later. 
Do you know why we're a casual church, friends? Because we don't want to put any unnecessarily walls up. We do not want to make it difficult for people to turn to God. About a year later after that experience, I met a dad of one of my son's teammates. He discovered that I was a pastor in the small talk that we were having, and he wanted my opinion on something, as people often do. Both of his arms were covered in sleeved tattoos, so he told me a story. He told me that at his sister's wedding, the pastor who had married his sister came up to him, unsolicited, mind you, and told him about how the Bible condemns tattoos. Good way to start a conversation, right? He asked, my, my, my new friend asked where, uh, where uh, in the Bible it says this, and the pastor said, well, in Leviticus. It tells us not to mark our skin on behalf of the dead. And so my new friend asked him, do you really think that's why I did this? And besides, he said, how many of the Levitical laws do you follow? And then he walked away. But the judgment and the condemnation he received put a very bad taste in his mouth about Christianity and the church. He had all but given up on the church at that point, but he had not given up on Jesus. So he wanted to know what I, as a pastor, thought about his sleeved tattoos. And I simply said, they're awesome. They're cool. They're sweet. Because one, they were. They were very well done. They were classy. They were fun. They were not vulgar or inappropriate. And two, whatever the Levitical law has to say about marking our skin has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And now he offers us a brand new code of context, right? He came to fulfill the old covenant and to illustrate and to institute a new covenant. And yes, it does inform the use of our bodies, but it does not do so in a legalistic sense. Jesus' new code of conduct is simply this, my friends. Love God, love others, love yourself. And the reason the world looks at the church and wants nothing to do with it is because we've added so much to this code of conduct. And we've made coming to God so unnecessarily hard and so unappealing. Several years ago, a longtime Christian who had been attending Restoration for a couple of years at that point found Emily, not me, mind you, after a service I gave on Genesis 1. In that, me- in that message, I said something to the effect that science is a friend to faith, which I firmly believe science is a friend to faith. It's not an enemy to faith. And I gave an interpretation of Genesis 1 that wasn't traditional, literal, seven-day creationism. And this longtime Christian approached Emily, not me again, mind you, and I kid you not, she said, your husband is on a slippery slope to hell. Ask Emily, verbatim, your husband is going to hell. He did not preach literal seven-day creationism. Needless to say, she and her husband did not come back the following week. How many of you know someone who thinks Christianity is ignorant because they can't reconcile what they know of it with science? I can name probably 10 people off the top of my head who hold this understanding. Christianity is ignorant because I cannot reconcile what I know of Christianity with science. My friends, we've made turning to God so unnecessarily hard. A few years ago, I was asked to preach at another church on a particular passage of Revelation. I did, and afterward, a gentleman came up to me saying that although he was still questioning this Jesus thing, for the first time ever, the Bible made sense to him, and he thanked me. And then I came home to an email from the pastor of the church saying he'd been fielding complaints all morning from their longtime church members because they thought what I said was heresy. 
You see, I didn't take a premillennial dispensationalist stance on what is probably the most obscure text in all of Scripture. And the, condri- and, the condi- and the Christians condemned me while the skeptics thanked me for it. And here's the thing. The fact that very few of you have any idea what I just said, premillennial dispensationalism, it's such a great indicator that we have made turning to God so unnecessarily hard. One of the reasons we have made it hard for the unbelieving world to embrace Jesus is because we have elevated doctrinal issues to the dogmatic level and condemned and judged those who can't get on board. You see, what I mean by all this is that there is a dogmatic center to our faith, a dogmatic center. These are the principles that we cannot compromise on. And there aren't that many of them, honestly, friends. The sinfulness of humanity, the virgin birth, the sinlessness of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, the triune Godhead, the bodily resurrection from the dead, and salvation through Christ alone. These are like the core of our faith, right? These are the center dogmas, the the uncompromisable principles of our faith. These are at the center. These are the hills that I am going to die on. Everything else, my friends, is just doctrine, Creation, the flood, women in church leadership, end times, and a million other fun conversations are just that. They are conversations to be had, and there is a very broad orthodox spectrum that they fall into. And here's the thing. When you take that doctrinal sphere, right, where there's a very broad spectrum of doctrines to cling to, when you take that and you shove your particular doctrine up into the dogmatic center, you have made an idol of your thinking, And when we do this, we judge others and condemn others for not sharing the same doctrinal positions, my friends. We are shooting ourselves in the foot as we make turning to God so unnecessarily hard and so very unappealing. And my friends, I am just scratching the surface, right? I haven't even talked about politics, white evangelicalism, race relations. I mean, there are so many things. I just encourage you to, to think about this in your own experience or ask your neighbor next time you see him why... Or what has been your experience in turning to Christ? Has it been hard? Has the church made it unnecessarily hard for you to come to Christ? Has the church made it unnecessarily difficult and very unappealing to come to Christ? We make it so hard for the world to care about the church. We make it so hard for the world to come to Jesus. We make it so hard for the world to take us seriously. And we make it so hard when, in fact, it should be the most natural and the easiest thing in all of the world to do. Everybody is longing for forgiveness we are saved by the same grace they are. Why don't we just offer it to them? Everybody is, has longings for satisfaction and purpose in the world. Everyone is asking the big questions. They're just finding solutions and other things. Why? Because the church has made it so unappealing and so hard to come to Christ to find solutions to the answers we all have. And so James continues in Acts chapter 15. Let's not make it difficult for people. Let's do everything in our power to make this community as friendly and inviting and hospitable as possible. Let's set aside all doctrinal distinctions. Yeah, let's have those conversations. We love to have those conversations here at Restoration. But I'm not going to die on the hill of my view on creation. I'm not going to let that divide us. I'm not going to let that separate us. I'm not going to die on my view of revelation and eschatology. I'm not going to let that separate us and divide us. Let's have those conversations. Hold whatever belief you want as long as it's in the the, the broad band of of orthodox thinking. There are some really weird thoughts out there that, that jump over that band, guys. I get that, but hold whatever position you want on those. Let's do that. Let's still be the church. Let's be united. 
And let's come together on the core dogmatic issues, and those are the hills that we must die on. Let's not make it difficult for people to come to Christ. Let us rather seek the good of our neighbor. Here's what he says. Instead, we should write to them, the Christians being in Antioch, telling them, and this is, gets, gets kind of weird, right, to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. And we're like, do what? That's James' advice to the Christians in Antioch who were coming to the, the Gentile Christians coming to Christ. James, didn't you just say that the law of Moses has been fulfilled and it's complete and we're not under its authority anymore because the ethic of Jesus has replaced it? So, so why these four Old Testament-like-ish kind of laws? Why not don't murder? Why not don't steal? Why not some of the big ones? Well, he tells us. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogue on every Sabbath. That's his explanation. And we're like, what? That doesn't seem like a very good explanation, but really all James is saying is this. My friends, the law of Moses is done. Jesus fulfilled it. He did not come to abolish it. He did not come to make it obsolete. He's not going to say it doesn't matter anymore, but he came to fulfill it and to institute a new covenant, a new expectation of behavior. And his ethic, his command to us is to love others the same way that he has loved us. This is our marching order. These are our commands. And they actually always have been. Love others like God loves us. That's it. Be considerate. Be kind. Keep the peace when you were able to keep the peace. You see, James knew his audience. That's it. James knew his audience. Right? Gentile converts who had, ab- who, who had abandoned their Gentile beliefs, but they hadn't abandoned their Gentile behaviors or customs or cultures. They brought all of that along with them. Many of them which were offensive to the Jews. And so all James is saying here is this. And this is so important for us too. Because Christians can be very, very inconsiderate. And Christians can be very, very rude sometimes. And when we look at the whole broad spectrum of how people are engaging the world and thinking about the world and living the world, especially in this pandemic, and we can be very inconsiderate. He simply says this. This is what he means by all this. Following Jesus begins a radical reorientation of our hearts towards love, and love accommodates. Love meets us where we're at, right? Love meets us where we're at and invites us forward. That's all James is saying. Guys, if your ethic now is around love, love accommodates. Don't don't go to your neighbor and say, hey, if you want to be a Christian, you need to start looking like me. You need to dress like me and behave like me, right? Eventually, they're going to get to the point where their life is oriented around love too. But, but if we put unnecessarily burdens and, and boundaries in front of people to cross over, we're doing an injustice to the gospel of Jesus. When we make it more than that, when we make it more than just what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, reorienting our hearts towards love for him and for others, when we make it more about Jesus, when we make it about our dress and our diet and, and our associations and our doctrine or our politics or our view about the pandemic and where we stand on that spectrum, when we combine Jesus with religion, we meet people where they're at, but here is the difference. We shame them for not being further along in their journey. Religion will always shame people for not being further along than where they are, rather than inviting them to move forward. When we combine Jesus with the law, 
we minimize what Jesus did for us, and we create an unnecessary wall between us and people, between us and the world, between us and our neighbor, my friends. And this is why the world, I think, views the church and says, I want nothing to do with it. We have made following Jesus and coming to Christ and embracing the forgiveness and the love that he offers us so unnecessarily hard. And so I hope that restoration can lead the way. I hope that we can be a church in our community, for our community, living out the one ethic of Jesus, which is to love one another the same way that God, through Christ, has loved us. I hope that we can be the vanguards within our community. I hope that other churches will look at us and say, you know what, we got to start doing like them because they're making an impact on their community. Not only are they making true disciples of Christ who are fully in love with Christ and what he has accomplished for their behalf and relying on that, but they are impacting their community. And they're changing the very culture of Levittown and the surrounding towns. But if we're going to do that, we have to humble ourselves. We have to recognize that the church, the big C church, has not done it well. That we've hurt a lot of people along the way. That we've done some things and we've said some things that people have found offensive and we truly have offended people. We need to humble ourselves and recognize that we have not done it well. And restoration hasn't done it perfectly either, of course. And then we need to repent. We need to say, okay, what can we learn from the things that we have done wrong? Let's begin to move now in a new direction. Let's change course. Let's love our community with a radical, generous love. Let us raise up disciples of Christ who are embodying this one ethic and living it out and and learning it. What does love require of me in this instance? How has God loved me? Now how must I then go love my neighbor? Raising up disciples and then living that out in our community, watching the world change before our eyes. My friends, we must be humble. We must repent. We must then move forward. And so I'm really, really excited to invite the restoration community, not just back, right? I don't just want you back. I want to move forward. I want to move ahead. God is calling us to do something so significant within our community, friends. I cannot wait to move forward with you and to fulfill all that God has in store for us. And here's the thing, my friends. If, if you don't know what I'm talking about, if, if you're here because somebody invited you and you're like, yeah, you know, I was really skeptical. I, I'm sorry that the church has made it hard on you. I want to invite you into a relationship with Christ, and it's really, really simple. It's, it's none of the baggage that the church has put on you. It's, it's none of like the, hey, you got to dress a certain way. You have to believe certain doctrines now that you're a Christian. No. I simply want you to acknowledge that that you are far from Christ and that God is leaning in your direction. I simply want you to acknowledge that you are a sinner and that God is leaning in your direction. He's not throwing lightning bolts at you. He's not. He's inviting you into a relationship with himself and a relationship into life and a relationship into purpose. And once you acknowledge that you are a sinner who is far from God, I simply want you to acknowledge that God has come near to you in his son, Jesus Christ, and he has done the unfathomable. He has crossed an infinite divide to come near to you in order to restore you and to give you an abundant life. And if you acknowledge that in your heart, that through the death and resurrection of Christ that he has done just that, then my friends, you are in the process of being made new right now. You're in the process of being made new. And, and then if, if you ever said that in your heart and wanted that in your heart and you've committed your life to Christ, my friends, if, and you've never been baptized, and this goes for everybody, if you've never been baptized, my friends, you need to be baptized. And luckily we have one on the 13th of June. And I'm not saying this just because I want a bunch of baptisms, right? That's not why I'm saying this. I'm saying because you are declaring your faith in Christ and you are entering then into a community who will love you moving forward. And so here we are, a church that is humble, 
a church that is repentant and a church that is moving forward. My friends, I hope that we can be the model, the vanguard within our community to be for our community. Are you with me? If you ever come across somebody who you have hurt as a Christian and you have put an unnecessary obstacle in their path, my friends, humble yourselves, repent of those actions and move forward. And part of that moving forward is approaching them and saying, I'm sorry for the way that I have portrayed Christ to you. I'm sorry for the ways that I have hurt you. That was not authentic. I was not a good ambassador of Christ. I did not represent him well. I got a lot of stories on how I've done that before, and it's been very transformative, not just for me, but for others. Some other day. It's getting late. All right, I'm going to say prayer for us, and we're going to get out of here. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you're doing here. Thank you for the grace upon a church that hasn't done it perfectly. Thank you for the grace upon all of your followers who haven't done it perfectly, Father. The same grace that saved us is also saving the world, and so I pray that we would rely on that grace even yet, but that we would not be just grace-filled people who go about our lives living as we want to and think that there's no consequence, Father. I pray that we would repent and choose to move forward by the transformative power of that grace. Change us, Father, into people who look like you so that we can represent you well to the world. We pray this in the matchless name, and all who agreed said, amen. God bless you all. Thank you for being here today. Hey, go love your neighbor today, all right? Go into the house of a friend who doesn't know Jesus and love on them. God bless.